Hey everyone, this is Vijay here and we are now on episode 18 of the Indian Diaspora podcast. Today I'm joined by Shashi, Neeraj and Vishwas. We have a full quorum. And the topic we're going to talk about today is immigration. Last week we had a very interesting guest, uh, Tej Nanduri, who uh, has over the years gone back and forth between India, the US, back to India and then the UK. And some of his decisions that we found out through our conversation were motivated by the ease with which he could uh, move to a new location, get a visa, be able to do the kinds of things he wanted to do, the kinds of businesses he wanted to run. And it kind of highlighted one of the biggest considerations that many of us in the diaspora have relative to uh, where we can go and settle and how easily we can start a new life. Now, you know, all of us on this call made some fairly straightforward moves to the typical countries, US, UK, etc. But even there, we have lots of stories, personal as well as from friends and relatives who uh, tell us about sort of the pain on, in the entire process, uh, some of the things that don't seem to make sense. Uh, and, you know, today might be a, a sort of good conversation as a follow on to last week's episode to just share some anecdote stories and maybe even talk about some of the pain points. Um, as I mentioned, I think in some of the previous episodes, my journey was fairly straightforward. I came to the U.S. as a student and uh, got on to uh, an H1 classification, but very quickly because of my Ph.D. Uh, was able to get onto a category. I think it's the EB1 category, which allowed me to get a green card very quickly and then get my citizenship after a few years. So my journey was fairly painless, but uh, I think some of the others on the call have had different experiences. The other thing we want to talk about is what it does to when when there is one person who is leading the charge, uh, what it does to the spouse. So that was the other thing that we might be able to explore. So let me uh, start this off with uh, Neeraj. Neeraj, you're also in the US, uh, kind of both of us came at the same time, took some different paths. Maybe we'll start with you. Tell us a little bit about what your experience was like and some of the things you've so, yeah, exactly. Like, uh, you know, I also came on a student visa, F1 visa in 93. Uh, but uh, after I finished my master's, I was looking for jobs and job market wasn't really hot. And I was in a very specific industry, which is not typical H1B employers. Um, back then, even, you know, Microsoft and tech companies were leading H1B sponsors. So I kind of continued doing my PhD. So towards the end of my PhD, uh, we in kind of ran into Y2K situation where almost every tech company was hiring in you know, bulk from India, from China, from other European countries. And H1B process became a little bit more a lottery based. So again, uh, I was not looking for jobs in the IT industry, so I was not willing to go out and lose my F1B, F, sorry, F1 status and and then be, you know, have an illegal status. Anyway, um, found a job, the company was willing to sponsor H1B, they did, and I got H1B. So what that meant was I left my science and academia career behind and started in banking and financial side of the world. It made me think, was it driven by uh, visa or something else? So it, it was a combination of many things. But yes, visa did drive that dis decision when I was not able to easily secure or find an employer, actually, 
that was willing to sponsor my H1B. So that was one part of the thing that, you know, that changed my career. Then we ran into this worldwide disaster, 9-11, where, you know, U.S. lost two buildings, people, it became a, it became a, you know, of course, international affair. But that was about the same time I was going through a decision of, hey, do I apply for a green card or do I wait till I get married? Because I had heard many, many horror stories that if you get a green card and then you get married, people think you're trying to, you know, use your green card to bring people to the United States. So your spouse might take three to five years to get green card. So I said, ah, you know, I'm not in a rush to get married and I'm not really in a rush to get green card either. So I'll just wait. And when September 11 happened, 9-11 happened, that again changed the decision. Like, okay, I don't know what that would mean. How do I do that? And I was quoting my current wife. So we decided to get married to, to avoid all this, you know, uh, visa nightmare again. I mean, so visa kind of kept driving my life decisions rather than, hey, it's the right time to change career or it's the right time to get married or it's the right time to do something. So, so we get married, we come to U.S., She's on H4, H4 visa. Uh, and that was the time I actually, it hit me what it meant because she could not work in the United States. So I was like, oh my God, a totally talented, well-qualified person just sacrificed her career to move to US with me and she can't work. And it's not like there were no jobs out there. There were jobs out there, but same thing. Like, hey, she's on H4 and we don't want to take pain to convert H4 to H1B. So we kind of kept going with that, said, okay, you know, we're going to start a family. Sometime we'll switch to green card and figure it out. And we did convert to green card. And then, you know, she started building her own other side career. But all these decisions, in all these decisions, the U.S. visa played a critical role. It was not a sideshow role. It was a critical role. And I think when I talked to the other people, those days I was very active in helping other people out. There were all sort of nightmare stories. People leaving U.S., going back, starting families, getting married after a green card and not able to come to the United States. And I was wondering, is that the reason people choose to come to U.S. illegally? Is that why an immigration being such a painful, you know, painful process? Uh, and then on top, I knew that a lot of people were leaving uh, the bank I was working for to go to UK and Canada and the process there seemed to be very easy and I think that's where you know Vishwas and uh, Shashi might have some experience but I'm like oh my god that, that's the process that makes more sense where you come to the country you see what you like and then figure out a career versus you find a career <laughs> and come to US and use that so anyway that that was my that was my short story yeah and it's very interesting right because what you're describing uh is, you know, there's some process involved, but there also feels like there are some elements of the whole process which don't make a lot of sense. I mean, in the end, if if somebody has been deemed as a good addition to the workforce in the country and have a uh, qualified spouse, I don't know why it doesn't make sense to allow them to also go and find a job and contribute to the economy. And clearly, uh, you know, your wife is very talented and capable, so the fact that she had to wait for many years. And there are some other elements about this that are also worth exploring. You know, when I was a grad student, um, I finished my master's and I went through some 
sort of rethinking of where I wanted to go and what I wanted to do, I had applied for a few PhD programs and decided in the end not to pursue them because they weren't in line with sort of what would create big outcomes down the line. And so I decided that I would discontinue. Uh, and I was ready to go back to India, actually, because, you know, if, if you're not continuing your studies, then uh, your visa doesn't allow you to stay in the U.S. And one of the professors with whom I had been doing my master's work said, look, you've already climbed the learning curve. Perhaps you just need some time to figure out exactly what you want. Why don't you spend one more year doing research on this topic? And maybe you can pursue a PhD or after a year decide to do something else. And that gave me some breathing room. I stayed on on my student visa, did some really good research work uh, in the hospital where I was doing some work on robotics. And at the end of that, uh, another professor who had a fantastic project in noise control and acoustics, uh, he said, come, come work with me. And that's how I ended up doing a PhD and eventually, you know. So there was no real grand plan. You know, a lot of people think that uh, you go to the U.S. and people have this all laid out. It's very iterative the way you're describing it where you kind of, uh, go from, you know, right now, this is my situation. What do I want to do next? And there are a lot of constraints and lots of uh, things to negotiate. And it sometimes feels like the process is designed to almost test your will. It's like, you know, uh, are you willing to take these various pain points uh, to get, get to the point where you can finally feel like you're settled and don't have to constantly worry about where is home? Uh, let's so let's uh, transition to you, Shashi. You are in the UK. You came to the US and then you went to UK. And I know the systems are quite different. Perhaps you can walk us through your experiences and describe some of the good things you saw, some of the pain points. You... Yeah, Vijay. Look, you know, I mean, I lived in the US for four years, but I was always a student there, always on an F one. Uh, but actually, you know, start with the whole process of getting a visa in India, and it's a very, very painful process. I mean, the first time I was getting a visitor visa to the UK before I, uh, before I became a student in the US, uh, you know, the sort of interrogation you go through, you know, it makes you feel like you know, everyone is being treated like a criminal uh, just in order to get a visa. And the same process happened with my getting a student visa. You know, the first time you apply, you get rejected. Uh, no reason given, of course. You know, that's despite the fact that I had uh, an admission from a top university. You reapply and you get granted the visa. Again, no explanation given about what was different about your application. So, you know, there's a whole process of being made to feel like the outsider that starts off, you know, even before you've left uh, India. Um, but anyway, I stayed in the US for four years. Uh, by the way, I had to reapply for my F1 when I transitioned from my master's to my PhD. And I went through exactly the same process of being rejected and then being granted a visa on my second application. But then in 1999, I moved from the US to the UK, and that was with employment. Um, you know, very much like you have a process in the US for getting an H1, there is a process to get a work permit in the UK. Employers need to sponsor you, and I was sponsored by an employer, got an H1, got a work permit in the UK. Um, three years into that work permit, I transitioned from one employer to another. Um, the new employer had to go and apply for a work permit. It, got, it gets granted very, very quickly. I mean, the process literally takes a day. But there's a huge difference in uh, the way the whole work permit process works here. And, and I'll come back to other ways in which people come here as well. The first is that um, if you have a work permit, transitioning from one employer to another is relatively easy. Uh, it's not painfully because the employer needs to sponsor you. And there is, of course, a cost to it and all that. 
but it's a very simple and easy process and it takes very little time. The second is that if you have a spouse or a dependent, um, they're allowed to work. And that is a huge difference. You know, I got married when I was on a work permit. My wife came here. Uh, she was initially a student and then uh, started working and she didn't. She never had to apply for immigration permits herself. And the third thing, which I think is very different from the US, is that um, I mean, the rules back in, the, in those days, the, the rules used to be that if you had been on a work permit for four years, you could apply for permanent residence. Now, you know, to an extent, I was conditioned by how difficult the process was in the U.S. But here, you apply. Uh, I mean, I went through a lawyer, but you know, I didn't need to go through a lawyer because actually the application process is fairly simple. You apply on day one. Um, day two, your application gets considered. Day three, your passport is back with permanent residence stamped on it. And that's very different from the whole process of getting a green card, you know, which takes years and years and years and goes through a lot of pain. So I think, you know, the process in the UK has always been designed that they want the talent, um, you know, getting that initial work permit has a hurdle. But once you're in, you're in. And they treat you and your family uh, with a degree of respect and independence, which I think is missing in the US immigration process. Now, there are other ways that have always been opened up in the UK. This, you know, this keeps changing, by the way. So there's been something called a highly skilled migrant program, other, you know, other points-based immigration programs where if they're looking for particular skills and you qualify, you can arrive in the UK without a job and then start looking for a job. And that means that your employer doesn't have to bear the cost of getting you a visa. And that's, uh, of course, it opens up employment opportunities for you uh, in a very different sort of way. So I think there are huge differences in the way immigration is treated in the UK and in the US. But there is a very big difference, which is very, uh, you know, which is very harsh in the UK which is that family unification visas are relatively easy to get. You know, if you're a citizen or a green card holder in the U.S., then family reunification is something that you can do. That route is not open at all in the U.K. So, you know, for example, you know, when my mother, you know, who's elderly, my father passed away a long time ago, when we were looking for what to do with her, you know, with her care and everything else, um, you know, there was a process by which she could get a green card in the U.S., and actually there was none that was actually really none that's available in the UK for her to move here on the basis that I'm uh, living here. So there are, you know, it's not everything is much is better in the UK, but if you're coming here for work, then certainly the process looks much easier. Yeah, those are, those are actually really uh, uh, some very efficient steps that you described on the work side, uh, Shashi, and I think it might be worth uh, benchmarking by the US as they figure out how to... Uh, uh, make it convenient for at least the talent they are short on or looking for coming into the country to come in more easily. I think uh, the other piece you talked about around family unification is actually very painful. Uh, now, it plays out a little differently, not in terms of bringing in other relatives, but even just being able to stay connected with your family. It plays out a little differently. I know of people who, in the U.S., I know of people who uh, um, have... I think started getting approval along the way towards the permanent residency. So you have this status where you leave your H1 status and go into, I remember from my days, it was called I-140. And then you have a 485 adjustment thing. And you're basically got this thing called a EAD, an employment authorization document, which kind of says, okay, you're legit now. You're just in queue waiting for your final permanent residence approval. But it's actually fraught with a lot of... Uh, 
uh, I guess, uh, risks and pain if you are in that status. It's not clear if you step out of the country, uh, go to India to, you know, visit your parents or relatives. Somebody might be having medical issues, whatever. Can you come back? Uh, I've heard of these stories where people have been stuck for a long time in the U.S., not knowing what it would mean uh, to step out of the country. So I think what you described in terms of the clarity and finality of the decision-making, which happens really quickly in the U.K., is something that would be awesome if that same thing could be replicated in the U.S. If you've been deemed as, okay, we've seen all your papers, we know that we want you to now uh, sort of become a permanent resident somewhere down the line. When that status change happens, it should just be, okay, you know, from now on, it's just paperwork and you can almost act like a resident and you can travel and all that stuff. This would just make life so much easier for people. So that's one of the major pain points that I've seen constantly being in limbo, not knowing, even though you, you know that you're headed to the, you know, eventual point of becoming a permanent resident, not, not knowing what you can actually do and uh, will something get jeopardized by just, you know, making one move where, and it might be totally family driven, right? So that's, I think, one major uh, uh, opportunity to improve the process here. So let's talk to you, Vishwas. Vishwas, you uh, um, traveled quite a bit. You're settled back in India now, but you also probably had to navigate the uh, visa system in, the, in different parts of uh, Europe. I think you spent some time in Germany. So talk a little bit about what you've seen and what you've experienced and some of the things that you've uh, have been similar to what we're talking about in some Yeah, so uh, I have uh, had an opportunity to uh, live and work in uh, US, in France, and in Germany. And uh, the visa experience, uh, work permit experience, or the student permit experience have been uh, different in each. And uh, very similar experience to what uh, Shashi was talking about. The U.S. Uh, visa uh, process uh, has given a lot of uh, uh, a considerable amount of discretion to the 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 visa processing officers who who actually do the interview right there. And my first uh, experience was that you know I was standing in the queue and there were. When I joined the queue, there were around five or six people ahead of me, and and all of their visas got rejected. and And there were multiple queues, and I think that day was probably the day where, when, a lot of visas were getting rejected. And I I, I don't know why, because uh, the people were just informed that they're getting rejected, and and uh, the people who were having their visas rejected uh, clearly had uh, a lot at stake. They were emotionally invested in, in, the, in the process and that rejection was very difficult for them to take. And uh, then it was my turn. All, all Remember, all the five people ahead of me got rejected and then it was my turn and the visa officer took a break. He went for lunch and the next another person came in and, and I got my visa. Uh, he started stamping my my approval before he asked me any questions and then he started asking me questions so it is a very high level of discretion that uh, the visa officers have which is in stark contrast to what i have seen say in europe 
for example, I was working in Germany for a year and uh, the contrast was not just that uh, it, you know, it, it sort of automatically gets approved, but also that the local authorities are the ones who approve. It's not a centralized process where the federal government is taking care of the visa approval process. So I had, uh, so first I uh, went to France for, for a year. I was, I was doing my MBA there and then I got a job offer from Germany. So I had the job offer and then my visa, uh, uh, my work permit, uh, work permit application was filed and uh, the employer said, don't worry, we are going to take care of this and we are going to onboard you here as well. So you, you just need to sign the paperwork we send you. So I came back from France to India and this German work permit took time. So that was another contrast to what uh, has been Shashi's experience in Europe, which was in Britain. The visa process took around four months. So it was a pretty long process. It was, you know, you just cool your heels. And uh, the application goes to the local immigration authorities with which the company has a good relationship. So it's not like it's going to a central processing place in the capital of the country. It's going to the local authorities and, and they approve it there. And uh, the forms were more or less filled and sent to me and, and I signed them and sent them back. And uh, after some time, I got my visa. And then when I went there, I got my work permit. So in this sense, there is a lot of contrast that I saw in terms of uh, exactly what Shashi was pointing out, that uh, there is a level of discretion, uh, a very, very high level of discretion that the U.S. authorities have in terms of approving and rejecting the visa and uh, a process that is not necessarily very pleasant for the people who go through it. While in Europe, the process uh, appears to be more straightforward, uh, not uh, constrained by quotas, really depends on whether the employer wants you there or not. At least that is how it was there in Germany. And take some time, take some time to complete. Yeah, this is a this is very interesting. This is also a different dimension that you're bringing around how the process happens, specifically this whole local relationship between uh, the immigration people and the local companies. That's a fascinating difference compared to the very centralized approach I think we see in some of the other countries. I, I still remember from a process perspective the first time I went to get my visa, and I'd love to hear your stories too. When I went to get my uh, student visa. Uh, I think some of the things you mentioned around discretion were very much in play, Vishwas. Uh, you literally knew that, you know, of the various cities in India where the consulates were, uh, there was this, uh, I wouldn't even call it a rumor mill, this was just uh, this word of mouth that, well, right now there is this person in uh, in the consulate in, I don't know, Delhi, who's rejecting visas left and right. So if you can avoid going to that office, go to a different one because... Uh, People are getting rejected right now. So you had to kind of uh, have your ear to the, you know, what is the gossip? Who, who's, who knows what's going on in these offices? Where should you go to maximize your chances? Uh, I went to Delhi to get my visa, uh, had to show up at 5 a.m. 
to form a line which would open. They'd actually open the gates at 10 a.m. So you wanted to get there early enough because somebody would at 10 o'clock would walk down the line and uh, decide these many people are going to go in and they would cut it off at some point. So you wanted to be ahead of the cutoff. Once you're in that, you were guaranteed that you would be allowed to go in. They didn't have those, uh, uh, you know, online registration and all that stuff didn't exist. And then you would just stand there. <laughs> if you wanted to go to the bathroom, you'd have to ask somebody to hold your spot. I remember some people driving up uh, and, uh, you know, I remember there was a local uh, uh, Gurdwara and from the Langar, uh, these people came on a scooter and they brought uh, free tea and food for there were a lot of Sikhs in the line, but it was for any, anybody who wanted to eat. So there was almost the social service going on to help these people standing in line. Very fascinating experience. And then, you know, this whole once you get inside the consulate, uh, not knowing <laughs> what questions they would ask you and how you should answer your questions to uh, not jeopardize your chances of being allowed to go to study, you know. So this was a very, very fascinating and interesting experience. Anybody else have some something to share and was it was it very similar to what i went through or was how has your experience been no i, I think i think vijay that's the experience all of us went through you know i mean it's a, i mean to say discretion is uh, i mean i think vishwas has been polite that the uh, these officers have discretion i think a lot of the decisions are very arbitrary you know like today is my day not to grant visas and tomorrow is my day to grant visas uh, you know it's not based on anything that you can detect as logic Whereas I think the contrast that I was drawing out and Vishwas was echoing that as well is that there is a very simple uh, sort of rules-based process that I've seen operating in the UK. But I think the whole process, I mean, you know, living in India, coming from India, you know, we've all got used to this idea that uh, migrating or traveling and all of these things is painful. And once you acquire a different passport, you don't go through that pain anymore. So, you know, there is definitely a sense that there is a part of the world where things are very integrated and you're welcome. And there's a part of the world where it doesn't matter who you are. And the fact that I've lived in the UK now for 23, I've lived outside India for 27 years now in the, in the UK for 23 years. I still have an Indian passport. I still have to go through the same process of getting a visa everywhere I travel. And I tell you, the process hasn't become any easier. I mean, the thing these days is that you can apply for um, an appointment. The things are a bit more systemized but it could take weeks and months to get a, a simple visa, all of which time you don't have your passport in your possession. And if there's any emergency, if there's anything you need to do, you're basically stuck. So I want to echo a little bit of that too, right? Uh, my process, whenever I had to get my visa, whether it was F1, multiple F1 renewals, because I was going to India every two years, and my F1 was only getting extended by one year, uh, because I was thinking, okay, I'll do my master's and get out. So the, the, there was never uh, complications. They were polite. Uh, only one time I had minor issue because my passport had a minor rip and they were, and the person at the counter, not the inside the embassy, was totally being, uh, I don't want to use the word, but he was like totally being authoritarian saying, I will not give you the visa. You have to go get your passport again. But other than that, my experience throughout the visa process in embassies have been very nice, whether I went to Canadian embassy or whether I went to British embassy to get a, those days you had to get a transit visa. So, so I have been really nice, right? Uh, but my decision to convert into American citizenship partly also was based on the fact that I was traveling back and forth a lot. And green card versus Indian passport combination was very good. 
it didn't it didn't have any problem going between us and india but one time i had to go through uh, frankfurt and what i didn't realize my airline ticket was booked such that i had to leave frankfurt and take a domestic flight to zurich and then fly to us out of zurich and they said no nope, you can't travel because you have an indian passport and you didn't take the what is it called schnecken visa and that was like oh my god if i'm going to travel this lot with my family is it worth switching the other way around where i take the american citizenship and oci card uh, i've been living here almost 20 years so it's i think it's worth doing that but to come to your point shashi i think given that indians are a major workforce in the world given that we travel a lot i think it's time for indian government to pull some muscle and say hey some of these countries let's do a reciprocity where you allow our citizens to walk through and we would allow your citizens to walk through uh, my past experience has been you know the india has a lot of visa on arrival programs for a lot of countries but it might be worth accepting you know passport as a tourist uh for example i went through dubai i didn't have to do anything i just scanned my passport went out had had dinner with some of our friends in dubai and 3 years 3 hours later i walked back in and that that's it there was no there was no visa there was no inquiry they were all facial recognition and automated system i'm like wow wouldn't it be good for the indian passport to have that much power right so given that we travel a lot given that we are one of the largest workforce in the world internationally not just within india so why not i think that's a great point neeraj i think given the uh, uh, you know what indian workforce has sort of done across the globe and how pervasive uh, we are everywhere and the talent is so much in demand and we are constantly traveling india should be sort of pursuing these uh, the strategy of getting reciprocity arrangements in place i have a couple of my own a schengen visa stories i'll just quickly share them with you because one of them was very interesting so you know uh, one of the things you mentioned was getting visas when i had the indian passport uh, my my most painful uh, schengen visa used to be when i was entering through france france wanted uh, this huge pile of documents but what used to be really funny was the last document they wanted was this uh, commitment from your health insurance company that if you died in france they would pay for your expatriation of your remains and there was a specific number you had to show that they would be willing to spend up to $37000 or something and you had to have that in writing so that was one the document i had to always produce if i had to get the french visa and they had this uh, embassy in in new york where they gave 15 minute slots and if you showed up and missed that slot go back and apply again and come back in a few weeks so that was Uh, I used to try and enter through a different country if I entered through Germany or something because you usually have to do it for the port of entry much easier so that used to be quite painful when I had to get a visa to travel the other one was um, I was in Germany once for work for a few weeks and uh, I had a colleague who was a US citizen we were both there and he said you know what I've heard uh, great things about uh, Prague why don't we over the weekend visit Prague and we said yeah let's do it uh, you know and i said yeah prague is next door it should not be a problem uh, i have a schengen visa i didn't know that <laughs> the czech republic was not part of the schengen agreement so we drove all across europe uh, all across germany uh, parked in dresden finally got a train getting you know starting to take the train ride from dresden into uh, the czech republic and this visa officer comes into the train and starts checking passports he takes my friend's passport yep no problem us passport go ahead takes my passport and he says 
uh, where's your Czech visa? And I said, oh, I have a Schengen visa. And he said, nope, Czech Republic is not part of the Schengen agreement. And uh, he took my passport and kept it with him and said, the next station is the last station in Germany. You need to get off. I will only give you your passport once you're off the train. And so my friend said, what's the point of me going alone? Poor chap, he had a US passport, but he couldn't go. We got off at the next station, took the train back, drove all the way back across Germany, back to uh, the little town where we were doing our work and uh, never got to go visit Prague. So that was uh, one of the uh, stories of not having the exact visa you need to get around. Um, yeah, so I think a lot of the pain points we're talking about today um, are things that can be solved. Uh, and I think uh, to your point, Neeraj, if uh, if there was a much better way for Indians to just have uh, mobility across at least the parts of the world where uh, you know they're constantly moving, that would be awesome. Anything else, guys? Any other interesting stories? Uh, so to, to Neeraj's point, uh, Neeraj, I believe uh, India's uh, visa system is very strictly reciprocal. So U.S. passport, for example, allows you to enter a lot of countries, but uh, U.S. requires Indians to have a visa for entry, and India does the same for U.S. nationals. Now, India has made the process very simple and straightforward through its e-visa system, and uh, the U.S. Uh, visa system is probably a lot more difficult, but the process is still reciprocal. So, you you know, if we need a visa, then you need a visa as well. My thing is, yeah. it's reciprocal, right? It does, it works that way. But when I had my colleagues go to India with me, they applied online within three hours, they had an approval, right? Yeah, good to go. Thank you. Bye. Right? We'll see you in India. Whereas if they, if my, my colleagues in India, they have to apply for B2 visa. Right now, they have two years waiting. I'm not talking two hours, two months, two years of waiting. So when I'm traveling to the conferences, uh, my staff cannot come to U.S. Uh, the earliest appointment some, somebody got was April 2023. One got for October 2023. I had two colleagues go with me to India online. Two, three hours later, they were accepted. So that although the visa requirement is reciprocal, the processes are not, right? And and I'm also not talking just U.S. I'm just talking as a tourist. We go to Dubai, we go to Mauritius, we go to uh, parts of uh, Southeast Asia, Australia. I think there could be a tourist visa reciprocity that can be made easier, not the work visa. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, my understanding is that that is usually a top ask by the Indian government when it is talking to any of the Western countries. So for example, uh, I think there was a recent uh, uh, list of things that India is going to talk to with UK and, and that was on the top. So usually it, it is very beneficial for India to have its people being able to travel easily because, of course, that will benefit it from a business point of view. And usually it should also benefit the other country from a, from a revenue and tourist point of view. But... Uh, you're right. The, that reciprocity is not there in terms of the ease of the process, but then that's not really in, in India's control because the, the, that process seems to have bottlenecks that uh, even the U.S. is, is struggling to, to, to fix because of their you know, other reasons. That's 
probably beyond the scope of this yeah. podcast. You know, I mean, reciprocity is an important principle and it works in very curious ways. <clears throat> Many years ago when I uh, used to visit South Africa very frequently, so India and South Africa both have, uh, both require visas for each other's citizens, but they don't charge a fee. And it's curious that, you know, I had to go to the South African embassy in London to get a visa, but, uh, and I was prepared to pay the fee. I didn't know that this agreement existed. And the lady at the counter told me, no, no, there's this reciprocal agreement, so you don't need to pay a fee. So, you know, it does work. And I think, you know, on this ground, the, US, the Indian government has been trying for very long to get uh, better visa facilities for Indian citizens. I think from the perspective of the Western countries, they look at the huge Indian population and see, you know, it's not just a good workforce. They could see potentially a large number of people wanting to migrate to the West, and that's what they're trying to control. And there, so there is this concept of Fortress Europe or Fortress America, which um, unfortunately keeps people from India out. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I, and and one of the one of the things that I've seen, <laughs> you know, you know, on the story side. One of the most difficult things that I've seen in filling out these lengthy forms for visas is that you have to fill out your entry and exit exit date from, say, the last 10 countries you travel to. I think that's for UK. And and it is, it's a, it's a pretty difficult process. You have to go back, look at your passport and say, okay, what are the date stamps on my passport on, on when I exited and when I entered a country? And then those dates are sometimes different because you enter and leave India at different times and you enter and exit the country you're going to and returning from maybe on a different date. Vishwas, you don't have, so you don't have a spreadsheet a, tracker for that? I actually, ah! kidding. I had actually built a spreadsheet tracker for that. So whenever I was filling the forms, I would just copy paste from the spreadsheet to, to the forms. <laughs> Yeah, that was that was my learning that you know you should keep a tracker of entry and exit to every country because a form that you fill sometime down the line the year in the years may ask you for you know when did you visit this country or when did you visit the last ten countries. On a slightly hilarious note, you know a lot of these visa applications, uh, I mean they ask you absurd questions, don't they? But uh, among the questions they ask you is. Have you been involved in terrorist activities? Have you been involved in human trafficking and, and modern slavery? I mean, honestly, no one's going to say yes to any of those questions in a visa application. But I, mean, I know why it's done, uh, which is that if you catch somebody doing that, then you can deport them very easily for having falsified information on their visa application. But it sounds so hilarious when you're filling these forms in. Yeah, guys, this is the this is this um, just a topic that we can probably talk about quite a bit. But looks like we have a few things that uh, that we have concluded uh, specifically around you know some of the <laughs> pain points, and uh, th there seem to be some really straightforward fixes for some of the things we're talking about today. But I think the the one of the points we didn't talk about too much, and probably we are not qualified enough to. Uh, talk about it is the experience that happens with the spouse. Uh, and perhaps there is an episode here where we could probably bring some of our spouses or maybe our friend's spouses, some of the people who have seen the uh, effects of being the person who comes as an H4 or something similar. Uh, maybe in the UK it was straightforward for you, uh, Shashi, but in the US there's definitely yep. uh, been a lot of pain. And I think Neeraj's story was just one out of probably others that we could highlight. So perhaps there's something here that we should have as a follow-on. 
and bring uh, some of our spouses or friends' spouses in to really yeah. talk about what they experienced and how things could have been better. But I think the overall point also being made is that, um, you know, we are starting to see a different mindset towards immigration in the last few years uh, because of events, current events and things of that nature. Uh, and this is a constantly changing landscape, right? So what we experienced when we stepped out of India was probably very different from what uh, people who stepped out 20 years before us experienced. And uh, now, I, even though we complain about some of the inefficiencies, there's a lot of things that have improved. I mean, the whole process of registering for an appointment and the paperwork has probably become much more streamlined. Uh, and then I think the other thing that we haven't really talked about today, uh, you know, our stories are fairly consistent. We are white collar professionals and uh, we are just a small subset of the overall immigration story. We are not even, you know, really talking about asylum and things of that nature. And uh, a lot of these constraints and delays are probably also because of some of the misuse that the system has seen, people overstaying, absconding, things of that nature. So while uh, there are lots of opportunities for improvement, there's also, <laughs> there is definitely this whole leakage that happens that uh, all these people are trying to manage. And I think there's just an overall workload that that is, uh, uh, that is being uh, sort of maybe slowing things down a little bit. But in general, uh, really good conversation today, guys. Uh, I think we highlighted some things. Uh, one of the things that I would say is that if we have been affected by this or are continuing to be affected by this, I think, Neeraj, you, you, know, you run your own business. You're always looking for talent. Uh, perhaps we also need to be doing more by uh, talking to our local uh, Congress representatives and stuff, stuff of that nature uh, and working with them to tell them sort of how this is affecting us and what sort of laws can be enacted. So that's an action that I'm going to take out of this conversation to get more involved in that process. Any other uh, thoughts before we conclude, guys? No, man. Uh, I think this is a topic that's very near and dear to all of us, whether we stayed in India or immigrated outside and definitely want to bring spouses in because there was definitely impact on their morale and, you know, sort of uh, the way they conducted their lives over here. So definitely follow up on those, th th those topics. Terrific. All right, guys, another good conversation and we'll catch up again in a week. But uh, otherwise, uh, take care and uh, talk to you soon. Bye.